find it boring if things just happen the way that we pictured them happening. And, uh, and we're kind of hoping that, that there's, there's some things that don't end up happening the way that we pictured them. And I would say that is unless, uh, unless you are a fan of, uh, Hallmark Christmas movies, because every single one of them has the same exact plot. If you've seen one of them, you've seen a hundred of them. I mean, I, you have that career woman who is, uh, who is going and just, uh, focused on her career. And then all of a sudden, uh, she ends up at a gazebo and there's some eligible bachelor that's there and they're not interested in each other. But for some reason, it begins to snow and they kiss and they fall in love. And that's the movie. <laughs> Did I get it right? I think I may have watched one, but if I've watched one, I've watched a hundred of them. So unless that's your thing, you, you enjoy things like happening and, uh, and, and they, they happen to be, uh, that they end up not the way that you pictured them happening. Thank you. That is, that is, I would say, unless it involves your life. In that case, you're hoping and, and many uh, maybe even expecting it to play out just the way that those Hallmark movies are. That, that the way that you picture them happening, you're hoping that your life follows the plot line of the way that in your mind you think all of this is going to take place. But the problem is it almost never seems to work out that way. The truth is life often ends up in a manner that's far different from the way that you pictured it. Just ask John. And that's what I want to talk about here this morning is not the way that I pictured it. Just remind you a little bit about this the ministry of John the Baptist. This is a, a man that his birth was prophesied of by an angel. While he was yet in his mother's womb, Scripture tells us that the Holy Ghost, uh, or that he was filled with the Holy Ghost while still in his mother's womb, that Elizabeth, his mother, she could feel him physically leap inside of her, uh, herself when her cousin Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, when she came to visit. And she knew in that moment that her unborn son, this young, uh, this, this uh, John, who was uh, still inside of her, that he could recognize the Son of God, who was himself still yet unborn. John's ministry, it was a ministry of preparation. His whole purpose was to get the hearts of the people ready to receive the Messiah. This is a man who he asked God to, to give him a sign that he would know for certain who this man was and who the Messiah was when he came. And, and God told him, I'll, I'll give you a sign. It's going to be the sign of a dove that will descend from heaven and it will descend upon a, a, a man. And, and that sign, it appeared on that day when John baptized Jesus. See, what he had suspected was confirmed. He, what uh, I believe he, he he knew from an early age that Jesus was that one. He was the promised one. That his uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. But now he he knew for certain that Jesus was the one. The sign had been 
fulfilled. And so now he could decrease, his ministry could decrease while the ministry of Jesus could increase. And yet, this did not mean that John stopped preaching repentance to the people. His, his ministry, it, it did continue somewhat. He was continuing to, uh, to get the attention of the people of Israel to try to bring them to a place of repentance in their lives. That they, they needed some change in their lives. And this included the normal, everyday people of Israel. But it also included uh, very important people. People of political importance, including Herod himself, the, the Tetrarch, the king, the, the ruler of Judea. And it was this sort of meddling that got John thrown into prison. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if John was actually probably thrown into prison a couple times throughout his ministry, uh, just because that was kind of the modus operandi of the, the Romans, that if you were somebody who was stirring up some trouble, if you were somebody who was uh, um, just disturbing the peace, especially in regions known for the volatility, then you're probably going to get thrown into prison every now and then. But, but there, this time, uh, John, he, he seems to take his, his, uh, his message of repentance just a little bit too far. He comes to Herod. And he tells him, there's some corrections that you need to make. And so Herod throws him into prison. And, and we read the passage already, but I'm going to read it. Go ahead, read it again here. Just these first couple of verses in Matthew chapter 11. It says that it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in the cities. And when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And he said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? So here's John. He's in prison. Somehow he has, has access to speak to his disciples still, and so in doing that, he, he gets some of them there, and, and he's contemplating the recent events. He, he, he requests of two, his, two of his disciples. He says, I want you to go find Jesus. Ask him this question that's been on everybody's mind, and it's on my mind. He says, ask him, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah? Everyone's been wondering this. Now, now for John, he just needed reassurance. Remember, John's whole ministry was about preparing the way for the Messiah. Now, now John, he ought to have known the answer to this question. He, he knew it before he was born. He knew it. God had already given him a sign that this was the one. Uh, but, but, and, and he knew that Jesus was fully capable of fulfilling this role, but, but there was just one problem. He wasn't being Messiah in the way that John thought he should be Messiah. He didn't seem to have any political motivations, which I don't know, maybe John didn't care about political motivations, but there's some, many out there that thought the Messiah would fulfill that role. It didn't appear that he was on any trajectory to overthrow the Roman government. And set at peace the, the people of Israel. He wasn't even trying to set them free from Herod's oppressive rule. We, we, we get a, a little glimpse into the expectations of, of John about the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 3. This is kind of early on in his ministry. Or it's actually the, the day when he had baptized Jesus. And just before 
he had baptized Jesus, he was speaking to some Pharisees, some Sadducees who had gathered there. And he says, uh, Matthew 3, verse 11 and 12, says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, we hear that phrase, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, and we get all excited, right? I mean, that's like, let me tell you about that Holy Ghost and fire. This this thing, it's like, it's keeping me alive. That, that Holy Ghost and fire in me, it's like fire shut up in my bones. I got to move a little bit when the Holy Ghost comes upon me. I might, you know, dance a little bit, shout a little bit. I don't want to mess with your theology because I believe all of that comes with the Holy Ghost, but that's not really what John was talking about here. He wasn't talking about how good it feels to receive the Holy Ghost or the the, the way it, it, it just begins to move inside of you. What John was actually saying when he said that there's one coming after me that's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, John meant And what he had in mind was this fire of cleansing. It was a fire of judgment. It was was a purging fire that John was talking about. So this this is what John had in mind when he was talking about the Messiah. When he was announcing and preparing the way for the Messiah. He says, I baptize for you for repentance. There's one that's coming after me. He is going to bring judgment upon you. He is going to, uh, to baptize you and bring you into a place where you can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when you are in that presence of the Holy Spirit, there is judgment that's going to come. There's a cleansing fire. And, and the reason I say that this is what John meant by that is because the scripture that comes right after that verse verse 12 we already read it he says whose fan is in his hand he's going to purge his floor he's going to gather the wheat into his garden he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire this is judgment it's the it's him saying there's the wheat and the chaff it's going to be separated that's a a whole metaphor that they often used at that time for separation of what's good from what's bad So John's understanding of the Messiah was of a man who is going to come in and he's going to finish the work that he started. He's bringing them to this place, John himself, bringing them to a place of repentance. But the Messiah would plunge them so deeply into the presence of God that judgment would be meted out. So that's John's expectation of the Messiah. And of course, of course, Jesus, he would bring judgment. There will be a time of judgment that, that will come upon the world. But, but in the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 3, he said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This isn't quite how John pictured it. The Messiah, his entrance and, and the ministry of Jesus, the one that, he saw come and the one that Jesus had already, or that God already sent this sign upon Jesus of this dove that rested upon him. And he, he knows this is the man, but yet he sees the ministry of Jesus and he's like, man, this isn't quite what I expected the Messiah to act like. 
I expected him to come bringing judgment. I expected him come and with, with, you know, forcefulness coming to the people. And, and yet, so, so, so then he goes and he says, I, disciples, go to Jesus and just ask him plainly, are you the one? It's not happening the way that I pictured it. Now, here's the thing. God, he doesn't always, he, he often does not act in a way that we pictured it happening. God works in ways that, that are, uh, that are different than our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The way that God works, it is absolutely perfect in His way. And in our mind, we seem to think that we've got it all perfectly worked out. But God says, just let me begin to do a work that, and work in the way that I know is best. But, but so, so John, John, he, he brings, or sends his disciples to Jesus. I'm going to pick up again in Matthew 11. The response of Jesus when those disciples come to him. Jesus answered them and he says, Go and show John again those things which you hear and see. The blind, they receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor, they have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he Whosoever shall not be offended in me. He says, tell John what you've witnessed as, as you've been with me on this day. You guys, you witnessed a blind man whose sight was restored. You, you saw a lame man who received strength in his legs when I reached out my hand and I prayed for him. You, you saw lepers, not, not just one, but you saw multiple People who had leprosy be healed and cleansed of that terrible disease after they came and sought my help. You saw deaf ears that were open. There, there was even a dead person who you saw me bring life back into their body. And in this message, it's not simply for the poor, uh, in, in the upper, uh, or not simply for the upper class, but this is a gospel message that is reaching the poorest of the poor. Tell him all of these things that you have witnessed and he will know for certain that I am the one that he was waiting for. The doubts of John can be cast aside. I I may not be exactly how he pictured me to be, but I am the one. Be assured of that. I am the one. However, that's not all that John or that's not all that Jesus had those two disciples go back and to tell John. After listing all of these exploits, Jesus said to them, I want you also to tell John that blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That last phrase, it, it's, it stands out. It seems a bit out of place from the rest of those things. He says, tell him all these great things that you've seen. Oh, yeah. And blessed is he who shall not be offended in me. I can just imagine John sitting there in prison receiving this news back from his disciples and, and he sent them to Jesus. They come back and they tell him all these things that they had witnessed and, and then they tell him, oh yeah, and Jesus wanted us to tell you, blessed is he who is not offended in him. And at that moment, I can imagine just John looking up and he says, when you saw the blind receive their sight, 
Was there anybody else there that was blind that was not healed? And they think back to the moment and they say, yeah, there, there was this one lady that was, that was sitting over here and she was blind and Jesus didn't heal her. Was, was there any, any lame man that was, that was there, any lame among them that, that they were not healed? And so, yeah, yeah, there was, there was a couple uh, people who they didn't end up receiving healing on that day. And, and, and yet, and, and John again, he says, I assume that Jesus, he isn't raising everyone back to life, is he? No, he isn't attending every funeral and interrupting every funeral and raising them back to life. But why, why do you ask this, John? Just then, I can just imagine this slight smile come across his face as he nods knowingly. He says, I understand what he means when he says, you're blessed if you're not offended in me. You see, John would never make it out of prison alive. The prison that he was in on that day when he sent his disciples to go meet Jesus, he would never make it out of that prison alive. And I'm sure that's not how he pictured it going. I'm sure that in, in, from an early age, that's not how he pictured his life progressing. I'm sure that even when he went into the prison on that day, that's not how he pictured it. That's not how his disciples pictured it. We can read this account. It's in Matthew chapter 14. It's, it tells us about John's untimely death. Matthew chapter 14. I'll begin in verse 3. It says, For Herod, he had laid hold on John, and he bound him. He put him in prison for Herodias' sake. This was his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It's not lawful for you to have her. This is, again, it was Herod's brother's brother Philip. It was his wife who... Herod took to be his wife, and that's the reason John was going to Herod to tell him, you can't do this. That's wrong. You can't just take your brother's wife and as your wife. And so that's why Herod threw him into prison. But when Herod, verse 5, Herod wanted to put him to death, but he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But then it came, as it was Herod's birthday. And the daughter of Herodias danced before them, pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head and a charger. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent, he beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, and they took up the body, they buried it, and they went, and they told Jesus. This is not how I pictured it going for John. This is not how John pictured his life coming to an end. It's not how his disciples pictured it, but, but this is how it played out. And so here is the important question for us here this morning. When things in life aren't going how we pictured it, how will you respond? See, as we came into a new decade at the beginning of last year, there were all kinds of people that were geared up for a great year. The, the year 2020 was going to be life-changing. 
Well, it was life changing, but not in the way that many of us pictured it. So how do you respond? How do you respond when things, when it doesn't happen the way that you think it should happen? See, we must respond in faith. Have faith that God is in control, that God knows what he's doing. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Don't live paralyzed with fear and anxiety over situations that you uh, have no control over. Have faith in God. And I know that things aren't as you pictured them, but have faith that God is still with you. He has not left you. He's not going to fail you. See, how, how do we respond when things in life aren't, ha- aren't going the way that we pictured them going? Jesus, he said, blessed are they who are not offended in me. And I understand that that's much easier said than done. But we must not be offended when God doesn't seem to come through when we expected him to come through. When we have a picture of how life ought to play out and yet it takes a turn that that we neither expected nor desired, we must not be offended by God. I just want to bring a few things to light here this morning as, as, as we... We bring this to a close here today that hopefully is going to help us put this into perspective of the way that we picture things and how God ends up letting it all play out, letting it all work out. I want you to remember just just three things here this morning. When when life isn't going, when life isn't happening the way that we pictured it happening. The first thing is that we must know and believe that God is sovereign. What does that mean? God is sovereign. That means that that God, he he reigns as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That that God, he created everything. That that he's the one. He set the sun, the moon, the stars in place. That God is the one that he made the earth, the fullness of everything that is on the earth. That he is the one that created man and breathed uh, breath of life into man. But, But God, this God who created all things... And rules over all things. He's not a vengeful God. He's not a God who rules harshly with his creation. But he's a God of love. He's a God that desires relationship. He's a God who, who, is, uh, who is the one that, um, that created man. And then he dwelt with man. Or he had a relationship with Adam, his creation. And then he's the one that told Moses, I want to come and dwell with you. Build me a, a temple. Build me a, a sanctuary so I can be with you. But yet also, he is the ruler, and he rules as he sees fit. And I understand that that fact alone makes us at times wonder why a good God would allow bad things to happen. Right? That question has shaken a lot of people. And it could have shaken John. But Jesus said, don't be offended in me. He says, I healed many, but I didn't heal them all. I I raised some from the dead, but most I did not. I I, I set some captives free, but others remained in prison. I intervened in the death sentence of some, but others had that death sentence 
come to completion with their head being served on a platter to the queen. See, God is sovereign. He is a good God, but that doesn't mean that only good things happen in life. And so when things are not going as we pictured them going, we must learn to accept the sovereignty of God and to trust that his ways are perfect. The ways of God are perfect. Now, we can pray and we can seek God say, and say, Lord, I need your help in this situation. Lord, I, and, I, and I would love for things to turn around. But God, I accept, Lord, the place that I'm in right now. And I accept whatever you would have for me. And I will not be offended at whatever I have to go through. God, if I have to go through the fire, I'll go through the fire. I'm not going to lose ho- uh, hope in you. God, I'm not going to stop serving you. God, I will not be offended by you no matter what I have to go through. God, you are sovereign. You're on the throne. And I'm going to keep you on the throne. Not that I have any say about it. You're going to be on the throne whether or not I do, or I put you there or not. Second thing that I would say is that we ought to put things in, into an eternal perspective. Our life here on earth, it, it seems to be all that we have to hold to. It seems like, it seems like this life that we have, it's like this some long drawn out thing, but really in the, in the span of, of eternity, this is just a drop in the bucket. This life that we have here on earth is just a drop in the bucket. It's, it's, uh, scripture says it's like a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And so when you think about eternity, how much do the hardships of now really matter? And I personally, I I love I love the honesty of David when he writes on this topic. It's in Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 73. And I'm going to I'm going to read this here in the New English translation. I'm just going to read through the whole psalm because I just I just love the brutal honesty of David throughout this. So certainly. God is good to Israel and to those whose motives are pure. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My feet, they almost slid out from under me. For I envied those who are proud as I observed the prosperity of the wicked. For they suffer no pain. Their bodies, they're strong and they're well fed. They, they're immune to the trouble of common, that's common to men. They do not suffer as other men do. Arrogance is their necklace and violence their clothing. Their prosperity causes them to do wrong. Their thoughts are sinful. They mock and they say evil things. They proudly threaten violence. They speak as if they rule in heaven and they lay claim to the earth. Therefore, they have more than enough food to eat. They even suck up the water of the sea. They say, how does God know what we do? Is the sovereign one aware of what goes on? Take a good look. That is what the wicked are like. Those who always have it so easy. They get richer and richer. And I concluded, surely in vain, I've kept my motives pure and I've maintained a pure lifestyle. Meanwhile, I suffer all day long. I'm punished every morning. If I had publicized these thoughts, I would have betrayed your loyal followers When I tried to make sense of this, it was all troubling to me. So here, he's looking around him, and he sees all of those who are wicked, all of those who are living their sinful life, and and yet it seems as though they are being blessed, and he is living a cursed life. 
Seems as though he gets all the troubles, yet he's the one who's trying to do what's good and right in the eyes of God. And everybody else is good. This isn't how I pictured it. This isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be those who are evil, doing the things that are evil, that are blessed. And they have all these things going right in life. And yet, finally, he comes to verse 17. And he says, then I entered the precincts of God's temple. And I understood the destiny of the wicked. Just when I thought that they had everything right, I came into the house of God and I understood that their end is going to be different from my end. That they may be blessed and be living this abundant life here on earth, but their end is not going to be that of abundance and goodness. Whereas my end will be uh, that which God says, in you I am well pleased. I come, come and enter into my presence. Come into heaven. I have an eternity waiting for you. And yet... This is, and in this, he comes to this understanding. He says, surely you've put them in the slippery places. You bring them down to ruin. How desolate they become in a mere moment. Terrifying judgments make their demise complete. They are like a dream after one wakes up. Oh Lord, when you awake, you will despise them. Yes, my spirit was bitter and in my insides they felt sharp pain and I was ignorant and I lacked insight. I was as senseless as an animal before you, but I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me by your wise advice and then you will lead me to a position of honor. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire no one but you on earth. My flesh, my heart, they may grow weak, but God, he always protects my heart. He gives me stability. Yes, look, those far from you die, yet you destroy everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is all I need. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter as I declare all the things that you have done. See, when David put it in the perspective of eternity, he began to realize that the things here in this life don't really have as much value as I tend to put on them. And I overvalue things that really don't have much value at all. That I see them being blessed and I see them with all these uh, things that doesn't seem as trouble as coming their way. But when I put it in the perspective of eternity, I realize that in the moment of their judgment in the moment when they die that there is something far greater that if I look at it in the grand picture of this that there is something that is so glorious that it that in my present moment I I may not have a a hold of I may not grasp it completely but one day it's going to be as I pictured it that as long as I continue in your presence as long as I continue to be faithful to you that in the long run the way that I picture it, that's how it's going to be because I will get to spend eternity with you. I get to spend eternity with you. Amen. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day when Jesus is going to come back and I get to meet him in the clouds. I look forward to the day when I get to sit around his throne and to worship him and all, all that the, the glorious things that are going to be in heaven. They're 
much grander, much greater than how I picture it. I'm sure of that. I'm sure it's going to be much greater than I picture it. And it'll be kind of the the opposite end of not how I pictured it. (laughs) I, I picture it as being something amazing, but it's going to be even greater than that. It will be even better than anything that I ever expected. I, I mean, you look at, you look at heaven, we don't, we, we get some little tiny glimpses into what heaven's gonna be like. We don't really get much of a, a full picture of it, but when, uh, when John's describing it, when he was, uh, privileged enough to, to get a, a vision of what heaven was like, uh, he went down to, uh, he went down to, to the roads and, I mean, today, if you, if I were to ask you to go to a city, Describe what the city's like. You're probably not going to start with the roads, right? The streets. If I send you to Chicago, Brother Duffy, and I I say, could you tell me what it's like in Chicago? You probably wouldn't come back to me and say, well, the streets there, they're just perfectly clean. They're they're clear. I I love the streets. I don't know. Maybe maybe you might complain of the traffic or something. but, But yet John, he comes down to the lowest thing. The streets, the streets in heaven, he says they are made of pure gold. The lowest thing, the thing that you look at as being the least, that is, is much greater than anything that you have ever experienced. The least thing in heaven is greater than anything that you can picture in your mind. And if the least thing in heaven is greater than that, then there is so much greater things in store for us that we have an eternity to, to be there with God in His presence. And I believe that, that, that eternity, when we put things in eternal perspective, that sometimes when life is not going as we pictured it, I still have something to cling to. I still have something to put my hope in. And I say, God, I trust you. God, that whatever I have to go through, I trust you. And I will be faithful to you in it. Amen. One more thing I just want to mention. It's, it comes from two scriptures. One of them in Isaiah. One of them in the book of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 tells us. Even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things. And for your pleasure, they are and were created. So according to Isaiah According to the book of Revelation, we were created for God's glory and for his pleasure. This is not to say that we are merely pawns on God's chessboard that he can just expend us and do whatever he wants whenever he sees fit. God, he cares too much about you to just use you and abuse you. God loves you. He has great plans for your life. He desires the best for you. And he also created you for his glory and for his pleasure. So I leave you with this here this morning. That I want you to know that whatever you're going through, if life doesn't look the way that you pictured it looking, that God is still there. And that he will use your story for his glory. That God sees your faithfulness right now. And in the midst of your trial, he gets great pleasure in your steadfastness. Blessed are those 
who are not offended in me. Blessed are those who are not offended in me. As you close your eyes right now, you may picture and and have this picture in your mind of how you thought things would be right now. They're not as you pictured it. It wasn't as John pictured it when that that executioner came into the prison to get him. It wasn't as John pictured it. But Jesus had told him, don't be offended in me. Continue to serve me faithfully. I'm going to use your story for my glory. I'm going to use the things that you're going through right now. And I find pleasure. I find pleasure in your continual service. I find pleasure in the fact that you continue to love me, that you continue to stand by me. God finds pleasure in that. There's glory in the fact that that God, He has brought us through. Come on, when we look back over our life, even though things aren't as we pictured it, there's still so many times when we shouldn't be here, and yet we're here. And God, to you be the glory and the honor for that. God, don't let me be so caught up in my present moment. Lord, of the, the hardships, the things that are going on, that, that I forget about all the great things that you've done for me. God, you are a good God. You are a good God. Oh, maybe somebody, if you want to lift up your hand in this place right now, let's just give God some praise. Let's just worship him here in this place today. Amen. I don't want to be offended by God. I, there's no reason to be offended by him. Amen. God, you, you have all things under control. God, you, God, you have a plan. God, in your mind that in the end, I get to spend eternity with you. Hallelujah.